The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Hunted by demons, lost in time, welcome to the First Crusade. I'm Kate Robinson, I'm here with Susanna Roundtree, and we are the Monstrous Regiment. So today we are going to talk about um, Susanna's new novel, which is called A Wind from the Wilderness. It just came out October 29th. I've already finished it. It's excellent. Um, but it, it digs into a topic that uh, Christians are very uneducated about, I think, for the most part. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Crusades today. Um, Susanna, I know that... Um, I don't know what it was like growing up in Reformed and Recon circles. I'm sure there was better education there than some of the... I mean, not education in general, but, you know, sort of religious education than uh, than some other circles. But growing up, to me, the Crusades were always sort of a foggy area that atheists used when you're trying to talk to them about um, Christianity, and they use it as a example of how religious wars are started and Christians sort of apologize for them. And there, there's just like a vague idea or narrative that it was just sort of a series of war crimes against innocent Muslims by Catholics. And uh, But this narrative that you've created about the First Crusade, you represent um, both sides as equally devout, um, equally caught up in, in political concerns, both well-armed and well-trained you know, tactically, um, and both pretty concerned with justice and freedom for their people. And so, you know, my first question is in several parts, but tell us what we have wrong about the Crusades and, and how it really happened. Uh, that, that is a huge question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, to go back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, um, Growing up in more sort of reformed circles, there was definitely a bit more of a sense that um, most people had the Crusades wrong and that, in fact, they were um, nowhere near as bad as um, most people thought. And there was also, um, even in, in some cases, you would come across people who thought the Crusades were a wonderful thing and that um, were completely justified and all that. And so I've sort of heard both sides um, growing up. Um, and so when I got interested in the Crusades, I was definitely coming at it from more of the perspective that they were probably a good thing. I didn't know a lot about them and I knew I needed to learn more, but I was overall um, probably someone who had a more positive perspective on them and it's interesting to see how that perspective has changed since I started studying this um, and and you know you asked how much of what we think about the Crusades today is a misrepresentation and that's almost impossible to answer um, there are just so many different perspectives on the Crusades um, 
And this was true. I mean, this is true now, but it was also true back in the time when that was happening. Um, I guess probably one of the biggest uh, mistakes people make about the Crusades these days is that they assume that people went on crusade because they wanted to grab new territories in the east, sort of like a Wild West claim staking scenario. Um, and um, I definitely found, studying it in depth, that there were people like that who went on crusade, like Bohemond, for example. Um, and you'll know a bit about him because you've read the novel. But the thing is, it, it would be a mistake to assume that everybody had that um, purpose mm -hmm or that that was the primary motivation, or even that you could disentangle that motivation from all the other motivations that were already also um, going on. Like there was a lot of spiritual anxiety um, that was very real to these people. We tend to assume today that um, they must have had motivations in going on crusade that, um, that were purely materialistic and purely political. Um, and that is to overlook how real their faith was to them. Um, so, for instance, uh, when it came to the church leaders, for example, Pope Urban II, who was the man who um, started the crusade by um, telling people, you know, um, people in the East, our uh, uh, Christian brethren in the East are suffering and uh, we need to go and uh, rescue them from their, their, their oppressive governments, which are not Christian, and we need to um, liberate the, ho uh, the holy places, the shrines in Palestine as well. Um, so their, their aim was all about liberation, whether it was of native Eastern Christians or whether it was of the holy places. And I, I, was, I read this one fantastic book, which is all about this topic, um, Professor Jonathan Riley Smith's book, The First Crusade and the Idea of Crusading. Um, there's a funny line in that book where he basically says Pope Urban and the other churchmen on the crusade, they were influenced by the Cluniac movement, which was a monastic movement in the medieval period. But they were influenced by this movement to have, in his words, an exaggerated notion of liberty. <laughs> You've got to watch those exaggerated notions. <laughs> right. We're accused of that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the language they used most often, these are the sort of higher up churchmen who probably had the most idealistic views on the crusade, the language they used was very strongly of liberation and, and they were, you know, their their hearts were burdened by the majority Christian population of the Levant and the Middle East at the time who, um, who were struggling under um, Muslim governments, whether Turkish or Arab. So, um, so that was what the churchmen um, intended to achieve. For the knightly class, that was a bit um, different because um, you had such a strong sacred secular divide in their culture. Um, so when you translated that into terms that the knights and the nobles could understand, it often came across as taking vengeance on the pagans for the disgrace which they believed that Christ had suffered. Um, and, and this is where you've got to realise that they had a very different view of politics and religion than we have. Um, they believed that Jesus had died as the very literal king of the Jews. Okay. They, they, they just took that so literally. They believed that the, uh, the land of Palestine, the, the Holy Land, um, literally belonged to Jesus. They believed they were literally his um, liegemen, his knights, and that thus they had a, a very literal world, worldly uh, obligation 
to fight for him and to um, address what they saw as disgrace that had come upon the name of Christ um, in, in a sort of feudalistic um, <laughs> vendetta sort of way. They, they basically were saw their relation to Jesus as being very similar to their relation to their earthly um, masters. So in some sense, they hadn't grasped the sort of kingdom-focusedness that Jesus was always trying to communicate when he was here. Right. And um, part of the reason why they had this... Um, why they had this very literal view of the kingdom was that um, at the time mm, you did have this sacred secular divide. And so the monks, you know, if you were going to really learn about your faith and if you're going to be a really good Christian, basically you had to become a monk or a priest and spend your time um, studying and renouncing the world and having an ascetic lifestyle and all that. And so for hundreds of years leading up to the crusade, um, knights had spent so much time listening to the church tell them that basically they were damned because uh, because of their violent knightly lifestyle and their views of um, revenge and honor. And so, in order to in order to save God and to save their souls, they would basically have to renounce the world and become monks. So around the time the first, by the time the first crusade happened, there'd been a reform movement within the church. And one of the aims of that reform movement was to encourage people who were living outside the monasteries, ordinary Christian people, the aim was to encourage them to have a more living faith that would have more impact on their lives. And so people were looking for ways, the church was looking for ways to encourage people outside the monasteries to do God's work in the context of their own jobs and their own lives, rather like the concept of vocation that came with the Reformation. Um, and you've got to realize just how incredibly powerful this was at the time. Um, crusading was a horrific experience, and I don't exaggerate that. It was um, expensive. Um, most of the time it was fatal and it was also deeply humiliating because you lost all your money and your horse and your armor and you know wound up and, and you were far away from everything you knew and everyone you knew and so there was one um, eyewitness who said at the time he was looking at the history of the first crusade and he said my judgment is that this is unparalleled there have there never had been among the princes of the secular world, men who exposed their bodies to so much suffering solely in the expectation of spiritual reward. Mm. Yet tens of thousands of people did just that. So, you know, the, the misconception is oh, quite often that the men who went on crusade was like surplus younger sons who needed an outlet for their violence and needed a way to grab land and wealth. Um, of course, in academic circles, this has been so thoroughly debunked, it's not even funny anymore. Um, <laughs> crusading wasn't just a ghastly and terrifying and humiliating experience. It was also ruinously expensive. The vast majority of people who went on the first crusade, they wound up either dead or impoverished. Um, I believe, we, we don't know for sure, but we reckon about 50,000 people joined the first crusade. Only about 15,000 of those made it to Jerusalem. Yeah, and um, and once the city had been taken, there were fewer than 2,000 of those who decided to stay 
behind and take care of the land. So in the end, you had 300 knights and about 1,500 um peasantry who decided to stay behind and take care of the land everyone else went home and so you know that's those are not the actions of people who came east in order to get rich quick no Uh, especially the peasantry i mean that was a sorry i don't mean to interrupt but that was an element i hadn't actually thought about in the crusades you know you think it's a military action and you're describing a military force and thousands and thousands and thousands of families and regular civilians traveling with them for that that purpose of you know wanting to save their souls or exactly everybody wanted to go on pilgrimage to jerusalem and it was and it had been really dangerous like um people would band together into pilgrimages thousands strong it was already known and they'd travel to palestine and hope that they weren't set upon by um by you know um bandits um, it was at least one pilgrimage. I think it was 3,000 or 5,000 people who got slaughtered in the Holy Land just um, a few years before the First Crusade. So, um, so obviously, when you had when you had an army heading east, a lot of people then said, "Wow, this is this is the perfect opportunity. We can travel safely." Right. They hoped <laughs> under protection. Yeah. So um, sure. So when you uh, when you look at the nobleman and the lengths they had to go to in order to raise the money in order to go east, they had to mortgage and sell huge amounts of their land and property. This has been this had been in the family um, in some cases um, decades, in some cases centuries. Because so many of them were leaving at once, the market was flooded. Prices went down, and they were only able to raise a fraction of what their property was even worth. So they were basically giving away <laughs> their properties in order to raise enough money to go on crusade. So again, it was not a get rich quick scheme. And right. then and then, then the idea that they were all surplus younger sons, well, Jonathan Riley Smith pretty much shot that idea in the head. <laughs> um, a few years ago, he did an in-depth study on the family backgrounds of the people who went on crusade. And he found that there was a family pattern, but instead of it being primarily you know, these superfluous younger sons, it was actually usually whole families that went together. For example, Godfrey of Bouillon went with both of his brothers and at least one of his cousins. Right. And you have, I mean, you have the leaders of the campaigns um, bringing their families with them, their wives and children, things like that as well. Which is historically accurate. Yeah. So, so if it wasn't, if it wasn't land and it wasn't a population surplus and it wasn't um, looking to build their own empires in the East. Um, what did get tens of thousands of these ordinary people to go on a crusade? Well, it was the fact that the very it was the very first time that anyone had told um, ordinary knights, and by extension, I guess, ordinary people, it was the first time that they'd been told that they weren't just, you know, dumb, violent, evil men who were going to hell. They were told that they could actually serve God in their daily occupation by going west, uh, East and fighting for a good cause. Uh, And, of course, that assumes that war can be a good thing sometimes. And, in fact, another fascinating aspect of this whole area of history is um, the Christian concept of just war theory took a quantum leap forward as people were debating whether they ought to go on crusade or not. Um, And so the crusades are a huge part of why we even have uh, an ideological basis for war in um, Christianity at all. I 
I believe that it's um I believe that you can get that from scripture. It's just that this was part part of the historical context in which people actually said, okay, let's go to scripture and let's see what um let's see what we can find out about um what it says about war. Anyway, so so the idea was that you know you could be a knight and you could serve God. You didn't have to choose between one or the other. It was such a new and revolutionary idea. People just People were so ready to do something meaningful with their lives, and that was why they um, flocked off to the east. Um, on top of this, they were promised indulgences. Indulgences were invented for the Crusades. But, of course, this is 500 years before Martin Luther, and so when 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 this idea first crops up in the First Crusade, it's more about, well, you know, you're suffering so much from fighting for Christ, we'll let you do this in lieu of penance for your sins instead of penance. And it was only later that we saw the kind of abuses that um, led to the Reformation. Or now, where you can get them for tweeting about things. <laughs> Different kind of abusive... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's all. And you introduce, you know, in your cast of characters here, which we're going to get to some of that because some of them are based on real people. But Mm -hmm. just you have a lot of moral quandaries that um, introduce those motivations, but also political loyalties that um, get in the way and and cause them to make decisions between what's politically pragmatic and, and what serves that cause of of serving Christ and doing, you know, this mission that they believe that Christ has commanded them to do. And then, and then you deal somewhat sympathetically with the other side of the Crusades as well, as as far as their view on, um, you know, achieving freedom and justice for their own people. Yeah. With the, with the Muslims. Yeah. I, 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 um, I certainly feel that I'm going to get, uh, one of two questions um, from people who read the book. And it's either going to be, you know, what on earth were you thinking depicting the Crusaders so th- sympathetically? And if it's not that, it's going to be, what are you thinking depicting the Muslims so th- sympathetically? Yep. And, you know, as I mentioned, <laughs> when I started out on this story, I was definitely more sympathetic toward the Crusaders, um, learning more about the history definitely made me realize that none of these people were clear-cut heroes or villains and I really think that you have to judge them on their own terms on an individual level um for example on the crusader side you've got a whole bunch of different personalities um there was Bishop Adamar who is the only one I'm really sure was a born-again Christian um as well as on the other hand you've got someone like Baldwin of Bologna who treated all three of his wives like dirt and was probably behind a coup which, like, murdered his adopted father in Armenian Odessa so that he could install himself as a count. It's a long story. (laughs) The main reason why I've treated both sides as sympathetically as I can is the same reason why I've tried to show both of them warts and all, which is that when I'm writing, I'm always trying to get my readers to say, you know, yes, I can understand why these people would behave like this. Um, many of my protagonists will eventually slide into downright villainy. <laughs> and it's it's not that I'm trying to get you to excuse this evil behavior. It's that I'm trying to prod your conscience. As humans, we're constantly saying to ourselves, you know, when we see bad behavior, oh, well, that's, that's that person over there. And I would never do something like that. And neither would my friends, you know. So I'm 
I'm constantly trying to puncture that sense of comfort by getting to you to really understand and appreciate these characters and their struggles and their motivations and then show you how you could end up doing very bad things um, because of it. Well, at least that's the idea. I'm, I have no idea if it actually works. <laughs> and so when it came to writing the Muslim characters, um, I was very, I was, I came to a point where I was like, well, I'm going to have to put myself inside the minds of these characters that I have so that I can actually make them convincing. And that meant, and that meant, and that meant learning to empathize with them. And that started, that was one of the things that started me down on a long track of just completely reconsidering how I was looking at Islam as a Christian. That's great. That I think we're going to get back to more of that, but, um, so what what inspired this story? You said you had um, researched the Crusades in depth. Did you do that as part of writing this story, or did you write this story because you were an authority on the Crusades and it was interesting to you? I mean, this is a nine-book series, so it's got to be something you're <laughs> quite passionate about. Yeah. Um, well, I definitely learned on the job when it comes to researching the history. I knew nothing, almost nothing about the Crusades when I decided I wanted to write something about them. Uh, what happened was about uh, six years ago, I read a book. It was a vintage young adult novel by a man named Ronald Welch. It was titled Night Crusader. It's a good read. It's about a young Frankish man who's growing up in the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th century. And it was the first time that I had ever realized that, oh, wait, hang on. The Crusaders didn't just go east and then come home again. Some of them stayed out there for generations and they built castles and cathedrals and villages and they became a permanent part of Middle Eastern politics and they created this amazing, unique, exotic culture that lasted for about 200 years. And that just completely captured my imagination. So as I dug deeper, I discovered it was only about 300 knights at the end of the First Crusade, as I mentioned, who chose to stay there and do that. And the Middle East, see, the thing is, it wasn't a lot more stable than it is today. And I thought that was the most post-millennial thing I'd ever heard of. That is weapons grade. <laughs> That's true. So I knew right away that not only did I want to know more about it, I also wanted other people to know about it as well. Um, and so that, that influenced a lot of the decisions I made planning the book like for example one of the things that makes this series different from most of the other media about the crusades is that it's very much about the crusades from an eastern perspective uh, the western perspective is stuff like you know robin hood or ivanhoe it's always about you know the crusades are something that you go away to for a few years and then you come back home again and that's when the story really gets started but i wanted to write something where everyone is already committed to living in this very unique place in history and uh, working hard to try and turn it into a stable civilization. And that, and that inspired uh, the choice of protagonist. Um, my protagonists are local Syrian Christians. They're not Franks. They're not Muslims. They're the people who were there before either of them came along. And I've actually never found anything about the Crusades from that specific viewpoint. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I noticed that, and I found that compelling because you're right. Most of the most of the talk about the Crusades is from a Western perspective, and and the thing that struck me about this book was that it is very rich in detail, um, as not only about the motivations and reasons that people are on the Crusade and and the various factors, but um, you know your your warfare was 
researched really well. Your characters are based on real people. I mean, so how much of the of the battles that you talked about, the way that they ebbed and flowed, um, the you know the real people that not your protagonist, but um, you know Count Raymond and Bishop Adamar and people like that who were real people. How accurate is your reflection of them historically? Well, um, my guiding principle was that I wanted to do as much research as possible. So, you know, you mentioned the warfare. Um, There's a man named John France who has written a military history of the First Crusade called Victory in the East. And he's also written a very in-depth book on weapons of warfare in the time during the time of the Crusades. And so I read both those books. They're very detailed academic terms. And, and that was great. One of my um, one of my main aims is to take some of the most recent, up to date scholarly research, and put it into a form that people can um, can take in accessibly and learn a lot without even realizing it. Um, when it comes to the characters and how much of what they did historically is accurate, um, you know, I go into this a bit in my historical note, but my my main guiding principle was that I wanted to do as much of the research as possible. I wanted to know as much about what actually happened as possible. And then I wanted to build my story around that. So where I where I wasn't where I'm where I'm extrapolating from what what we know rather than altering or um or adding on top of. So Okay. Um so yes, all the, all the characters. I've had to th- read the original sources. I've had to read academic um, articles and books about them. I've had to try and extrapolate characters for them from what we know. Often it's not. Often we don't know a lot. We've, I've got characters in there that I've you know completely made up personalities and motivations for. But um, you know, short of climbing into a time machine, I have no way of knowing if my guesses are correct. But all I can say is that they're pretty well educated. Um, for instance, Bishop Adama um, spent a lot of time, his time on crusade trying to make peace between all these headstrong and arrogant princes as well as between the Franks and the Eastern Christians. And, um, and Raymond of Saint-Gilles, we know that although he was one of the most clever and capable leaders they had, he eventually made a lot of enemies because of his more dictatorial manner. So, um, yeah, I just re- Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, yeah, I read your historical note, and then I thought it was interesting that um, it seemed like some of the there were actually debates about um, some of the things that took place there, and you kind of had to make a choice be- as far as what seemed the most likely guess. But um, so one of the most interesting things about the novel is that you include um, a mythical and supernatural element and i'm guessing that you're treating a lot of the um things that people believed at the time as if they were real so what what made you choose to do that or tell me about that yeah um so i've just always i guess um the word has gone away i'm a writer i should (laughs) well that's why you get to write because you don't have to talk (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've always gravitated. That's what I'm looking for. I've always gravitated towards historical fantasy as a genre. Um, I guess adding, I'm, I'm first of all, I'm interested in history, and then I guess including, I don't want to say adding, I want to say including fantasy elements 
I think really helps me to peel back the sort of rationalistic, materialistic worldview that we come to our history with and sort of show a bit what might have been going on behind the scenes spiritually. I think this is um, something that in the Reformed world, Christians tend to completely ignore the whole arena of spiritual warfare. And yet when you look at it, um, when you look at it honestly with an open mind, you realize that spiritual warfare was a huge element in the Crusades. And um, so, for instance, you know, <laughs> somebody asked me, you know, I didn't realize you were going to make this a fantasy. And my answer was I didn't have to make it a fantasy. The history is chuck is full of miracles and visions and dreams and sorcerers and actual demonic activity. You know, I've exaggerated a lot of the fantasy elements. I've put my own spin on them. But again, it's 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 like with the historical fact. I'm just working around what's already there. Um, for instance, one eyewitness um, account, I believe it may have been Raymond of Aguilas, tells us that during the siege of Jerusalem in 1099, they saw two Muslim women come up onto the walls of the city and they were trying to cast spells on the besiegers. And so, of course, when I first read that, I just sort of brushed it off. But then I was reading another book about uh, the Saudi royal family in the 1990s. And they claimed, the author claimed that there was a literal court wizard for the Saudi royalty as recently as the 1990s. And that was just a moment I just put down the book and went, huh. Okay. So after that, I decided to keep a, a more open mind. And, you know, and when you look at the spiritual activity during the crusade, this is also very important to note. It's not just, you know, Muslim witches trying to bewitch the Christian forces. It's also, you know, the crusade at certain times got massively deceived by demons with very serious potential consequences. And so they definitely found plenty of listening ears um, among the Christians. And so when I look at everything that was going on, I'm always thinking, you know, how can I study more about what the Bible says about spiritual warfare and start trying to pull pull the uh, curtain back a bit so that we can see a little bit of what might have been going on and how it might apply to us today. So that's where the that's where the supernatural element comes in. That's good. I'm glad you did. I thought it was um, very compelling, and and so that's wonderful. Um, okay. So these next two questions we talked about before, these are important. What did you hope to communicate through the series? I know you addressed that a little bit in the first part. Is there anything you didn't cover um, that you wanted to, what was your message that you wanted to convey? Right. Um, so I guess, I guess the, for the whole series, you've also always got, a lot of aims, especially this is a very big and complex project. Um, like I said, one goal is definitely to bring some of the more up-to-date academic research into a more accessible um, form that people can learn a lot while they read. Um, we've got a problem in Crusader academics, I believe, and that problem is named Sir Stephen Runciman. He wrote a very popular and very widely read history of the Crusades back in the 1940s. But at that time, medieval history as a discipline was still very much in its infancy. And unfortunately, a lot of the assumptions that he made in that work have been thoroughly debunked by more recent, deeper research. 
And historians have recognized for a while that he was also very deeply biased. Um, unfortunately, his writing is very engaging, very accessible. And he, so he's had a stranglehold on how ordinary people view the Crusades for about 80 years. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a position to write that kind of history of the Crusades. But I'm hoping that my fiction will um, go somewhat towards popularizing the more recent research. Another goal is obviously to talk about what was actually happening in the, in the Crusades from a covenantal Christian perspective. Um, so much of the Christian perspective on the Crusades doesn't really go beyond the usual, um, oh, you know, Crusaders were heroes who saved um, Europe from being overrun by brown people, that thing. sort of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Basically, you know, I wanted to create empathy and understanding, no matter who was reading the book. You know, are you a Christian reader? Okay, great. Well, before you start seeing the Crusaders as heroes, maybe just try and imagine what it might have been like to be an ordinary Muslim person who was just minding his own business and this huge and terrifying army falls out of the sky onto you. Maybe, you know, you're an agnostic or you're an atheist and you've always looked down your nose and laughed at religiously motivated violence. Well, you know, step inside their mind, see what it might actually mean to be afraid of going to hell when you die. You know, maybe you're a Muslim, you see the Crusaders as villains. Well, take a, take a minute, think about the local Christians who are still a majority of the population across many areas in the Middle East at the time. Think about why they might have rebelled against their Muslim rulers and welcomed the Crusaders with so much jubilation. I don't want anyone to come away from this book feeling like their team were the heroes but i do want them to come away loving their neighbors better that's perfect that's a that's a wonderful way to put it um so the next question is in two parts what do you think that well actually i'll let you answer it and then if um what do you think that christians as readers might object to in your story if anything yeah that's that's a very good question um, and I have, so far, the book has only been out for a few days, but I've had some advanced readers contact me with a few questions. And um, there, are, there are basically three main questions that Christian readers might have, and I'm um, really happy to address any more than anyone might have. You know, email me. Um, but I've got three main objections. Um, first of all, some of them have wondered if I'm trying to say that the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran are the same God. And... No, I, I don't believe that at all. Um, the God I worship as a Christian is a trinity, and the God worshipped by the Muslims is a very, very stark unity. And I don't think there's any way you could refer to them as the same entity. However, if you look at it from the historical standpoint, there have been times when it hasn't been so easy to tell the difference. I mean, even converts these days from Islam to Christianity often take several years of thought and study before they can come to the realisation that the Christian God is different. Um, but back in the 7th century, when Muhammad was getting his visions, he was quite sure he was receiving new revelations from the same God. And at the time of the Crusades, people on both sides still didn't actually dispute that they were the same God. So, um, so my decision, I had my characters just speak and act as if they were the same. It was just a historical accuracy issue for me. I didn't want to give them um, anachronistic views. Uh, that makes perfect question sense. I've had Pardon? Oh, I was just saying that makes perfect sense. You're writing your characters in the time that they lived. Yeah, exactly. Uh, second question I've had was whether I'm trying to say that salvation can come apart from Christ, and this is 
tied into some plot details that we won't disclose here. Um, yeah, so can salvation come apart from Christ? I'm a little bit surprised to get that question. I'm a little bit surprised that you did too, honestly. That didn't, I didn't pick that up at all, but you never know. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I've rewritten this story and edited it three or four times, so I'm much more familiar with what I've said in the book than people might be who've just read it once um, and might have been so caught up in the plots and things got past them. But no, okay, I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian. I, be, I do believe that the name of Jesus Christ is, there is no other name in heaven or earth um, by which you can be saved. But I don't, I don't come out and say that in the story. And you might think that I left it ambiguous. Um, so one of the things that I had in my mind as I was writing was that I wasn't just writing for a Christian audience. I write for a general audience. And my book, I wanted it to be read and hopefully enjoyed, not just by Christians, but also by atheists, agnostics, Muslims, and so on. Which means that if I'm going to come out in the story and say that Christ is the only way to salvation, you know, I, I can't just put that out there and leave it. I'd have to spend a lot of time constructing a detailed apologetic. And that's not a job I can do in this book. It's just not what fiction is for. Um, Nabil Qureshi has a book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, does a much better job of that. Um, so this is a story. It's, it's not an apologetics exercise. I do believe that that um, presupposition is there in the bones of the story. And if you're looking for it, you'll see it. But, um, but I didn't want to rub it in people's faces. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before. That's a, that's a, a very um, unsophisticated, heavy-handed way to communicate that makes mm -hmm. Christian art basically only accessible to a Christian audience and useless to the rest of the world. <laughs> so, Yeah, exactly. Um, some people have wondered, this is a third question that I've kind of gotten, Am I saying that the differences between Christianity and Islam are unimportant and we should all just tolerate each other and get along? Um, yes and no. Um, I do believe that Christianity and Islam are mutually exclusive ideologies, but ideologies are not people. Right. And we fall into a trap when we assume that because the ideologies are mutually intolerant that the people should be as well. Um, you know, absolutely. Either God, the, either God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or he is Allah, the one and only. And you can't have both. You can't have both ways. You can't have them both as Lord of your life. But can we invite Muslims into our homes and share our lives with them? And, you know, not automatically assume that they're all terrorists? Yes. Of course. <laughs> it's <laughs> the tribalism thing that we're always trying to deal with, where, where you exactly. very vocally and strongly oppose wrong and wicked ideas for the sake of the people who hold them. Exactly. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. How come we can't be friendly and loving and servant-hearted towards the huge number of Muslims who don't want us to blow us up? And if we can't even be loving to them, then how are we supposed to find the love and blessings for the really tough nuts? Yeah. And I will tell you, too, I, I spent some time in the Middle East, and uh, the, the people who live there are 
in large part, the regular normal citizens are extremely servant-hearted and hospitable and friendly. Like, they would put a lot of us to shame. They'll give you the last thing they have. And so part of that's because of shame and honor culture and, you know, things like that. But um, they were some of the kindest people I've ever met. And, you know, I've never been there, but I've diligently read um, travel memoirs about people traveling through the Middle East because I've wanted to know and it's exactly what I've found as well. But, you know, so this wasn't a mindset that I had when I first began writing the series. <laughs> Originally, when I started writing the series, I was writing with a real fear of Islam as well as, if I'm going to be honest, a fear of individual Muslims. And so I, I was, I intended to make sure that my audience came away just as scared as I was. But as I was writing my way through the first draft, not only was I finding myself challenged to put myself into the mind and empathize with the, the Muslim characters I was writing, I was also becoming more and more dissatisfied with the way that the story was turning out. And I had this shocking moment when I realized that somehow me, I, I'm a post-millennialist, right? And somehow I had written this book that was deeply pessimistic. I say to myself, that's not right. I believe in the victory of Jesus Christ over all principalities and powers in heaven and on earth. Somehow I've written this really sad, depressing, fearful book. <laughs> sure, I had to spend some time trying to figure out where I went wrong. And that was when I heard Bozhar Marinov's amazing podcast. Um, it's, an, it's the episode titled, Why is Islam Taking Over Europe? Or is it? <laughs> I haven't heard that one yet, but now I'm interested. You haven't? Oh, no. It's, it's fantastic. 37 minutes long. By the end of that podcast, my whole paradigm had shifted. And I realized, I realized Islamophobia was a real thing. And that it was a great name for, for what I'd been feeling. You see, if Christ is king, and if he has already won the victory, then we don't have to fear anything on earth. And certainly, certainly not Muslim people. Absolutely. Um, Amen. <laughs> Bodji says, a few terrorists are not a cultural threat, and when we fret about those few terrorists, we are only declaring our own weakness and fear. That's excellent. And, and so I, I was then able to go back to my story with a completely new perspective, and that has really empowered not, not, not just my writing, but also my ability to go out and seek criticism and feedback and friendship from Muslims in the writing and reading community. And it has been very precious. That's what was one of the questions I was going to ask you, was what, what kind of feedback you have gotten from Muslim readers on this? Um, mostly it was pretty positive. Um, I, ha I, uh, I had one, one Muslim reader tell me that um, she was so thrilled to help me uh, improve my book because she had always wanted to be a writer herself and then had realized that you know maybe she wasn't cut out to write fiction but now she was getting this outlet for her creative impulses and was so thrilled to have it that was that's fantastic that made that made my that made my week actually <laughs> um but yeah no when I one of the things I wanted to make sure of obviously you know anytime you're writing about people that are different from you, you have to make sure first that you're representing what they actually think and are like correctly. And so, um, so I wanted to make sure that my representation of Muslim theology and culture was correct. So they were hugely helpful with that. Um, helped me figure out things like Muslim funeral prayers, 
uh, how, how Muslim characters might handle not having enough time every day to make all of the five daily prayers. Um, they help me letting me know what a Muslim character like Isla would do in certain circumstances. For instance, I have her reciting the throne verse to protect herself from demonic attack. That wasn't in a previous draft and they helped me understand that that was something appropriate to include. And I think all those things helped me to do a much better job, not just of uh, depicting the Muslim characters accurately, but also making the story a lot, more, a lot stronger and more meaningful, which is what happens when you've got good good uh, authentic detail yeah which that's what was communicated to me throughout the whole thing was just i mean obviously i don't know anything about the crusades so i couldn't tell how authentic the detail was but it does it's not the sort of thing that you just make up you know and it was very clear mm -hmm. that um that it was thoroughly approached from all sides and i appreciated that mm -hmm. Um, I think that basically covers it. I know some of my questions that I had had while reading it, you answered in your historical note. I, you know, I was curious about the relationships between all the warring princes and the emperor and <laughs> things like that. But um, I don't. If there's, is there anything else you want to add before we close it up? Oh, I could add all. I could. I could talk for another three hours about this whole period of history and the process of writing the book. But yeah, it's I'm, fascinating. I guess I'm done for now. Well, I really enjoyed it. I appreciated it a lot. I can't recommend it highly enough. And it, you know, I was. I hate when. I start a series that the author is not done writing because you can't just. I'm a binger, and I just want to go on to the next one. <laughs> so. Um, well, I'm working on the second one this month, um, hoping to finish the, the the draft that I'm working on by the end of the year. So <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Great. I look forward to it. And uh, so I would encourage everyone to, oh, that's what we wanted to say. Where can people yeah, get yes. the book if they want to buy it? Okay. So the book is available in ebook form and paperback form. You can buy that from most places that carry ebooks and paperbacks like Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, um, Google Play. It's on Google Play. Um, if you want to visit my author website and make sure you get directed to the right place um, to buy that for you, go to susannarowntree.site and I think we'll put up a link to that. Um, and you'll be able to find it in your preferred format from your preferred retailer. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That was very enlightening. Thank, thank you. I really enjoyed getting to talk about this. Oh, good. I'm looking glad. forward to sharing this story with people for years. It's, yep. Yeah, it's such a great story, too. I know we're done talking about it, but it's a great story. It's like the the big overall picture of the Crusades, and then you've got these individual stories and and characters that are sympathetic and that you want to know more about, and you just did a very, very good job. So Thank you. It's good to hear that. As a humble reader. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been The Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.